Welcome to Beyond Politics, broadcast on WKXL and available wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Matt Robeson, and I want to thank all of our new subscribers and the people who have left us ratings and reviews, especially the nice reviews, on whatever podcast platform that you avail yourself of. All of those subscriptions, ratings, and reviews really do help us out, and we appreciate them. And if you haven't done that yet, I want to encourage you to do so. I am joined today by John Storr, who is the editor of the editorial board. That sounds redundant. It's not. The editorial board is a fantastic publication that brings together writers, thinkers, analysts, journalists, and brings perspectives that maybe aren't finding their way out into the public sphere in other places. John's a fascinating guy. He's not particularly partisan, but he has a really interesting mixed background in journalism and political science. He's not a political scientist, but he is a former visiting professor of public policy at the very prestigious Wesleyan University. He is a fellow at the Yale Journalism Initiative. I've heard of Yale. That is also very prestigious. He's a contributing writer for Washington Monthly, a contributing editor for Religion Dispatches, a columnist for Public Seminar, and a senior editor at Alternet, where he has been my editor for uh, some very incisive analysis that I've offered. John, welcome to Beyond Politics. Thank you for having me. It's a, pro- it's a pleasure. Well, it's delightful to have you. What prompted you to start? First of all, tell people, what is the editorial board? Did I give a, a good description of it? And what prompted you to start it? Sure. But the editorial board is a newsletter uh, written in plain English for normal people and the common good. And I, uh, I like to play around with that term, normal people. Um, normal people are people who have responsibilities and kids and jobs and school and things like that. You and I, however, Matt, are disqualified from being normal people. Uh, anyone who's involved in the media, I tend to, and there are reasons for this, but tend to, I tend to disqualify them because we just don't think like normal people do. Normal people, um, want to, I think, read about um, current affairs in ways that are, and this is getting to me to why I started the editorial board, uh, that are not uh, presented by most of the big uh, publications. Uh, your, reader, your, your listeners probably know that we've had a crisis in journalism for the past 20 years. And the long and short of that is that, the, that there's uh, er, that all politics is now national. All news is now national. So that even your mayor's race, like we have one here in New Haven, even that involves national politics in ways that really don't make any sense for a New Haven mayoral race. Um, And uh, there's not a place really for, um, I think, people who are not involved in the Washington Press Corps or in, in alliance with the Washington Press Corps to go and hear about um, concerns and points of view that normal people have. I, you know, I understand the problem of normal people, (laughs) you know, what's normal, but I think if you are, if you're not a journalist and you're not uh, inside Washington, you're probably more or less a normal person who, who uh, doesn't see your points of view reflected very often in the media. Well, it is a real problem. It's actually a tangible, palpable problem with real world consequences. One of the smartest political consultants I ever worked with, I asked him at one point, hey, did you read this piece in the Washington Post? I figured, look, you know, we all read the pieces in the Washington Post. That's what we do. And he said, oh, heck no. What do you mean? What are you, some kind of illiterate? You didn't read the Washington Post? He said, no, 
the only paper I read is USA Today. And that's mm. because I want to get as close as possible to the way real Americans, and I know you've commented on that phrase, real Americans, and I want yeah. to touch on that. But yeah. the way real normal people, as you would put it, experience the news without kind of the big media elite bias. And I think mm. that's that's really that's really valuable. And it is something that's increasingly missing in now. That's not to say that the perspectives you get on the editorial board are unsophisticated. I think that's mm-hmm. a that's an elite mistake to assume right. that not being part of the political and journalism elite means that people, Americans, are unsophisticated in their views. We get incredibly sophisticated takes from people like Lindsay Beierstein and Chris Sprigman and Mia yeah. Brett, authors who I've had on this show, and our listeners should go back in the podcast feed and check them out. Really incisive, thoughtful analysis and perspectives that I haven't heard elsewhere before. Let me turn that last bit into a question to you. As the editor of this site, you're bringing together this collection of thinkers and analysts like that. Who's offered a perspective that has given you the reaction, I hadn't thought about it that way before. Mm. This is fresh. This is new. This is not the way the media mainstream is thinking about it. I'm really glad that this was brought to my attention. Well, I'm, I'm drawn to... Uh, points of view that are outside of what are what's considered conventional wisdom and you know it it won't shock you to know that conventional wisdom is often dominated by people like you and me white men (laughs) and so I I do look to women uh, who can really write and uh, to non-white people who have something to say and so um this is not tuning my own horn, but I very, like, almost every time Lindsay Bayerstein writes something, I see something new. Uh, Caitlin Bird is another uh, writer you really should watch out for. She is incredible. Um, she um, with, unfortunately doesn't write as often as I would like her to. Rod Graham uh, is another, he's a sociologist out of Old Dominion. I think you had him on your show um, and he, he's wonderful. Uh, and so on. Th- these, these are people who um, have something to say, have have always had something to say, but have not. Um... So the problem with elite publications is that they recognize themselves and tend to only recognize themselves. So when, <laughs> so the New York Times, when it when it looks for what's good, quote unquote good, it looks for other kinds of elite writers uh, who tend to reflect the New York Times, right? That's and that's. This is this is the Times bias, which is, by the way, not ideological. It's just it's more sociological than ideological. Mm. And so, uh, if you are saying something that's outside of what is considered good, quote unquote good, or outside of what is, in fact, elite opinion, then you probably don't have a place in the Times. You probably more have you probably will have a better luck in the Post. The Post tends to be on the spectrum of normal. <laughs> the Post is more toward the the end of uh, of normal and the times tends to be far, the, the farthest away from normal because it reflects, it really reflects uh, the, the opinions of very powerful and wealthy people, right? And the fact is that most people in this country are not powerful and they are not wealthy and their opinions do not move the levers of power, right? And yet they're courted uh, constantly by those who are in power to either support their policies or support their candidacies, et cetera, et cetera. So, so but going back to other writers, um, I think uh, women in general tend to be boxed out. Uh, women of color are most certainly boxed out. 
and I try very hard uh, to seek those writers out and to um, to give them a place. And that's not altruistic, by the way. I think it's saleable. <laughs> you know, right. I really think I can sell it. Um, and 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 so far, it's it's been working in partnership with Alternate and with Raw Story. It's, it, I think it's been working. Well, I think that's one of the realizations that Hollywood has come to as well in recent years, which is, you know, this used to be kind of a niche proposition. It's like, oh, let's let's feature some diversity here. Right. That's that's kind of good for our brand or, you know, let's give so and so a shot. Well, it turns out that the biggest grossing movies are the ones helmed by and featuring people of color. And it turns out right. that there is a hunger for that kind of content out there in America. And by the way, that's more like what America looks like. And people, lo and behold, want to see that diversity of stories. And it seems like that's what you're finding with the editorial board as well, that that richness of perspectives is saleable. It's what the market wants. Right. Speaking of richness of perspectives, you've been offering in your own writing, because that is one feature here is that people who subscribe get a piece by you virtually every day. And one of the really interesting perspectives that you've been pushing, and I had that reaction that I was asking you about a moment ago, hmm, I hadn't thought about it hmm. that way, is that the whole push of the Republican Party right now, you argue, is about lawlessness. Mm-hmm. What's what's that about? What's, what's your argument there? Because it, it's not something, it's not a way I had thought about this before. Yeah. Yeah. You know, well, I grew up in a very conservative environment, so I was very attuned in the 70s and 80s to conservative talking points like law and order and lawlessness and uh, et cetera. Well, it turns out the pandemic has flipped the universe upside down and created an opportunity for liberals to uh, tap into the deep well of Republican rhetoric and use it against them, I think. Um, this, uh, I say in, in today's piece that the, we do not have really a crisis of public health. We have a vaccine, it works. If everybody did what they're supposed to do, the pandemic would probably be over by now or at least minimal. Um, we would have achieved herd immunity. What we have is a crisis of behavior, right? And we have a uh, Republican party that has embraced lawlessness such that makes room for actual criminal behavior, minor crimes so far, like just breach of peace or making a nuisance of yourself at a public meeting or things like this. Uh, the conservative activists call this freedom of speech, whereas really if the conservatives were on the outside looking at their own behavior, they would call that lawlessness. If they were, if they were, if this was a bunch of black and brown people raising hell at a school board meeting, they would be screaming about law and order, get these people under control. And uh, I don't mean to just be clever and just flip the script. Um, I really do mean that um, there's a small minority of Americans who are literally, I mean this literally, robbing the rest of us of our freedoms. They are sabotaging the recovery. They are making room for a virus to mutate and spread uh, such that the, even those who are vaccinated uh, now may be, the, well, they not just maybe, they are more vulnerable to the mutated virus because the vaccine was really meant for the previous version of the virus and now it's now it's updated itself just like the flu vaccine does or the, just like the flu virus does. 
So they are, you know, this is an ideological stance on my part, like these people are robbing us. Um, and we don't talk about it that enough. And that's part of, part of what I mean by plain English in the editorial board. And, and that is that suffering and cruelty and sadism are actually features of politics that are almost invisible if you read the editorial pages, the op-ed pages of the New York Times. Because people just don't assume that it's there. They just, they, 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 they're too polite. <laughs> you know, they don't, they don't think, you know, somebody's actually trying to be cruel and trying to hurt me. And when, when in fact, that's exactly what's happening. The Republicans are trying to hurt not only their enemies, but themselves in order to make a, uh, to make a point. Um, this is, um, as, as I said, in other versions of the editorial board, that um, the most, the, the Republican Party really is best understood as an authoritarian collective. And there's really nothing more important to the authoritarian collective than the perpetuation, the preservation and perpetuation of the authoritarian collective. And that means that members of that authoritarian collective can be and will be sacrificed in order to per perpetuate it. Uh, and that, lo and behold, that's what's happening. You know, you have a state, the state of Florida read by, led by a, uh, an authoritarian governor, in my view, who is readily sacrificing his own people in order to perpetuate not only, not only his political career, but in the service of the larger authoritarian collective. It's, I think it's a really compelling notion that we abide levels of sadism, cruelty to one another in American society. Now, look, to some degree, you could say, well, that's been with us a long time. Mm -hmm. We right. tolerated slavery for a, for a long time, at least a, a significant portion of our society. But it's... <laughs> It's a provocative idea that something has shifted, something has broken in the way we deal with one another. And I, I want to run by you an idea that was floated at me from someone who I think of as a deep, a deep thinker, a former Capitol Hill colleague, who suggested to me, you know, just as much as there's been a change in our laws, there's been a real change in our norms as a culture over the last 15 or 20 years. My response to him was, you know, I tie that to the rise of the online world and especially the social media world. It's not a coincidence to me that the retweet button was introduced in 2009. And I know you're someone who likes Twitter, so I don't mean to offend you, but the, the, the share button was in competition introduced by Facebook in 2012. And right in that time frame is when our politics really seem to go off the rails. And I just wonder about how the norms of the online interactive world, which are very different and filled with vitriol and flame, have begun to creep into the real world, in real life, as you, as you call it, online. And th there's no greater avatar of that than Donald Trump, who seemingly crawled out of this online culture as sort of this avatar of negative sadistic virality that the America looked at and said, Oh, that, that doesn't seem that crazy to me that I'm used to that. Mm -hmm. I, am I, does that jive with sort of what you're observing in terms of this culture of 
cruelty and authoritarianism and um, lawlessness that that you're seeing emerging, at least from the Republican Party, but maybe writ large in our culture. Mm. But well, one way I'd respond to the so so yeah, cruelty and sadism has been baked into the cake from the beginning. Uh, it was the philosopher Richard Rorty who uh, introduced me to the idea of sadism. He called it during the Jim Crow era, basically, you know, from Reconstruction to the 1964 Civil Rights, um, or the 1965 Voting Rights Act, he called that period a uh, period of socially accepted sadism. And, uh, and I think that's exactly a great way of thinking about that period, that it, we've always had sadism, but it was socially accepted, right? And really after 1965 or increasingly, as we as we go along after 1965, it became less and less accepted, and I think um, and it became more more or less baked into the cake that 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 as long as you just didn't talk about race, then then we um, then we can avoid being sadistic. You know, there's problems with that whole that all that kind of thing of not talking about something that's right in front of you, that kind of thing. But I think Donald Trump makes everything so that you can't ignore it. Right? It's like right in front of you. And part of the react, I think you could say that uh, Twitter is creating, Twitter or any kind of social media creates kind of divisions, but you could also say that, um, I don't mean to sound simplistic when I say this, but but it, I have to say it simply, that there are elite, uh, people who have elite, uh, who are elites and who exercise, who flex their opinions often have control over the political discourse or at least the boundaries of the political discourse, uh, such that um, it's possible like in a world without Twitter, you could imagine um, anti-wokeness dominating the political discourse, for instance. Um, you know, we had wokeness that got rid of Trump and elected Biden, and now we're having this backlash against wokeness itself. And wokeness has its own problems. But you could, in a, okay, so in a, in a world without Twitter, you can, you can imagine like the New York Times and their op-ed pages kind of dominating the discussion, right? And just, and, and what I call respectable normal people, you know, shaking, nodding their heads. Yep, okay, yep, yep. But then there's Twitter. Twitter's like, hell no, I'm not doing that. I'm not going to just imagine there's 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 that wokeness like doing good to other people is a bad thing. No, I'm not going to accept that, right? And you so I mean, is that is that just vitriol? I think it's like normal people, like I keep talking about normal people who have a sense of decency saying, "No, I'm not going to put up with that." Yeah, that's that's really interesting. And I I do want to return to this question of what's lacking, kind of where we started a few minutes ago, of, of what's lacking in the editorial pages of some of the, these bigger publications, because that's been diagnosed in a whole variety of ways. Some diagnoses have been, well, these pages themselves have become too woke. They've become mm -hmm. too immersed in sort of what's in vogue of the liberal intelligentsia, especially you know people who come out of the university setting, college setting, and by the way, that's one of the issues, right, is that most of the writers and journalists are college educated young people, most of them white, and most of them are pretty woke. And so mm -hmm. that's changed the whole tenor of what we're seeing in these major publications. John, right before the break, we were talking about some of the contrast of what you're offering. What do you think is going on with some of these big publications? Let's just call them 
I don't know, the, uh, the, the, the Boo York Times. I don't want to give it away <laughs> too much. Um, you know, the, the criticism has been, boy, they're reflecting the sensibilities of a very young, highly educated, much more affluent segment of our society. And maybe that's not in step with where most of America is uh, for right or wrong. Is that, is that the fundamental issue going on here in terms of what we're, we're getting from these other outlets? Or is there something else that's, that's kind of ailing them? You know, um, you know, uh, I, I, I hate, I don't, I don't want to get into the navel gazing about the New York Times because there's so much navel gazing about the New York Times. That's true. We can choose you know, a different one. Yeah. Well, I mean, the Times, the Post. I mean, the problem is you have uh, an an economy that can't that does not allow for a lot of competition. Um, you know, the big ones are going to survive because they're big, and everybody else starves to death. And and this goes back to our original point about about local journalism when. Okay, so local journalism wasn't like some golden era or something. They had their own problems, but still, you when newspapers could basically print their own money uh, and and um, make it as much money as they wanted to, they had an influence on people's opinions. They had traction on their attention spans in the ways that really don't exist anymore, and which makes it so that the elite publications have way more influence on your opinions than than there would have been even ten years ago. So all of that is to say that I honestly think the times could just be the times. What we need is three or four other publications that compete with the times and um, not compete for the same elite slice, but, but speak to different segments of the country. You know, um, like for instance, the New York Post, um, everybody knows now that it's a right wing rag, but at one point it spoke for like work, working class New Yorkers. This is pre-1980 something before Rupert Murdoch bought it. Was it before or after the greatest headline in the history of journalism, headless body found in topless bar? I don't know. Your your research assistant can look that (laughs) up. But but it is that, you know, that spirit really was, um, is is no longer uh, available, right? There's just no newspaper anywhere in the country, no publication anywhere that does that. Uh, and the, the other thing too is that the, the, those publications that can compete are there's so many of them that they they basically, basically fracture all of our attention spans, you know. And the editorial board has uh, is complicit in this way. Like I'm looking for that one, just give me five minutes, <laughs> and then and then there's like ten other people who are asking for just five minutes of your time, and it splits your attention in ten different ways. Um, so, you know the going back to the times, you know, the, they are what they are. The problem, their problem is that they have this make-believe sense of balance uh, that, that really just, I, I do not see that balance represent, represented in any way, anywhere in the country. Um, it's totally possible, to, for instance, to be a conservative without being a fascist. There are plenty of historical models in this country. George Romney, being one of them, Mitt Romney's dad, or even Mitt Romney himself, you could make the argument, is just a kind of regular conservative. New England, where I am and where you are, is rich with uh, old flinty conservatives. Flinty. Uh, uh, flint, right? <laughs> they used to call them flinty, right? Flinty, yeah, for some I mean, reason. like Calvin Coolidge, I was just reading about him the other day. It's like basically like 
extremely skeptical about the uh, about human nature, but also willing to use government as a check on human nature, um, which is something all progressives would be like, yeah, I'm totally for that, you know, even if you're not all that concerned. <laughs> I mean, there's ways of being, so in other words, there's uh, a lack of imagination. If I were to fault uh, the times, there's a lack of an imagination, probably because, like, as I said before, those who sit at the top of that very high perch tend to recognize other people who are sitting on high perches and don't recognize as worthy anybody who's not sitting on a high perch, right? And so there's, uh, you know, that leads to a lack of imagination and it also uh, makes them susceptible, susceptible to getting conned uh, by people who just say the right things or do the right things, but are really just saying everything in bad faith. You know, like, um, like Brett Stevens, is, uh, he can't speak without speaking in bad faith. And yet he's, um, you know, goes to the right parties, knows the right people and finds a job with the New York Times. Well, I have not seen you at all the right parties. <laughs> I personally go to all of those parties. You know, <laughs> one area, <laughs> one area that I think the editorial board has been offering some really incisive analysis and also just ideas and perspectives, whether or not I personally agree with all of the takes. I always appreciate them. And one thing that I do that's probably dangerous on Twitter, you probably shouldn't do, people out there, warning, don't do what Matt Robeson <laughs> is about to announce that I do. I, I will retweet things from the editorial board that I don't 100% agree with because they're thought provoking. They're, they're a different take on things that are, that are reasonable. And I think there needs to be more of that kind of thought. If I'm presented with an idea that I'm like, huh, I'm not sure I'm all the way there on that, but I'm going to think a little bit more. That's, I think, what we should all be going for. One area where you guys have done really, well, I write for you too, so us guys have done a pretty good job, is on abortion and the Texas law. Mm -hmm. uh, Mia Brett has been doing an outstanding job. You've written some really interesting pieces. Let's just talk about that whole potential conflagration in American politics for a moment. You, you wrote a piece last week in which you offered to pour a, a tall pitcher of ice cold water <laughs> over a sizzling hot take about the Texas law. What is the hot take and what is your pitcher of cold water? I thought this was really interesting. Well, first of all, thank you for all the nice words you're saying about the editorial board. It's very, very nice to see um, that all this work appreciated. So thank you. So the, the hot take is is basically um, a presumption that um, the Texas law will backfire in the faces of the Republican Party and that um, the, it will hasten the exit of white suburban women uh, from the Republican Party. Uh, that they've already been leaving and now with this Texas law and adoption of the similar laws by other states, it will hasten the exit even more. I find that to be interesting, but probably, but not all that convincing because, uh, and this is the tall pitcher of ice water, um, I think white people will figure out fairly quickly in Texas and other places that the law doesn't apply to them. And they will figure out ways to uh, get around the law and have all the abortions that they need um, with the blessing of uh, a government that passed the law in order to create exceptions for, for white people. So that white people, especially white people of means. So the, they, the, there, there is the kind of idea like, well, what if, 
what if a, a white person is convicted or not convicted rather this is not a criminal law right it's a, a law that takes place in civil courts what if a, a white person is sued etc well that person will be you know made a pariah cut them off you know <laughs> don't don't associate there that person is now persona non grata they they didn't do the law or they didn't abide by the law and so therefore that's it and that won't change anything um, remember what I said about the authoritarian collective, it will cut off its own arm if it has to, to, to preserve and perpetuate the authoritarian collective. So um, I think Democrats who are um, looking for that silver lying vastly underestimate the power of white supremacy, but also white solidarity. Uh, the, uh, this concept of white solidarity may not be familiar to your listeners, but within you and I are affected by it in, in, in ways we probably don't even know. But it, I have lived in the South and I have felt very acutely the pressure of white solidarity. Basically, it boils down to, are you one of us? Mm. Right. You're one of us. Right. You know, and you're against them. Right. I mean, that's white solidarity. And so the, the, the Texas law does uh, incentivize snitching. Let's make that clear. But white solidarity will, put, will mute that, I think, quite a bit. There will probably be some people who have, have access to grind and vendettas to settle, and we'll see all of that. But more or less, I think you will see that uh, white people will figure out that this law doesn't apply to them, and civil, civil courts will make allowances for uh, a, a system of law that already uh, protects those people in the in-group and punishes those people on the out, in the out-group. Um, and this, this new Texas law just kind of makes all of that worse. I think that's the, that's the one thing that nobody talks about. Well, I won't say nobody, but very few people talk about when it comes to this abortion law is that it's really an effort to create a two- to your system of justice. It's, it, for those who don't know, it, it um, creates a bounty system. It uses vigilantes instead of agents of the state to prosecute the law. Uh, and, and by doing that, you're using lawlessness, right? Uh, people who are not accountable to anybody legally, uh, but have all the incentive to act lawlessly uh, so you're, you're using lawlessness to destabilize what I say in my piece, the equal treatment principle of law. So the whole point of it is to create a system of law where the in-group is protected and the out-group out is punished. That was the aspect of that article that I found thought-provoking and eye-opening. And it fits right into that description I offered earlier of, I have to think about everything in an article that you write or one of the other writers on the editorial board, I frequently have to think about it further. Sometimes I decide I agree with all of this. I agree with a portion of it. Usually though, there, there's a few nuggets in there where I'm like, huh, I've really got to think further. And that's why I end up retweeting them. Mm. And that was the aspect that I, I offered a new perspective to me. It was a new take on this Texas law, which is let's think about this in terms of how it's actually going to be applied. So this comes up all the time in a, as an abstruse an area as capital gains tax policy, right? Mm -hmm. There's the nominal level of capital gains tax, but in reality, 
it only applies when you sell assets and you know in certain circumstances and so the the real version of the tax is very very different it applies to very different people and much much less is paid the same thing is happening per your point with this texas law there's sort of a nominal version of it that could apply to everybody but in reality i started to think about well who are the vulnerable people who don't have the resources to fight back who are going to be picked upon who are going to be most exposed who don't have the ability to get their abortions in a more under the surface way. Well, it's going to be people of color and it's going to be people who lack means and it's going to be our Uber drivers and it's going to be the people who are very out front and don't have the ability to fight back. That's what should really bother us amid four or five other things about this is who is it really going to hurt? Who is going to be sacrificed on the altar of this law for the purpose of this broader political fight that the right wing seems to want to pick. Speaking of fights that the right wing seems to want to pick, you've also made a really fascinating point about authoritarians and how at base, they're essentially cowards. And we should we should not take them at face value when they say, I mean, maybe partially, but when they say they're going to act out in all kinds of ways around say, vaccine mandates, maybe that's something we should, yeah, not take at face value. What were you driving at with that article? Well, one thing you see all the time in in respectable media (laughs) uh, is a uh, credulousness when it comes to what Republicans say. And, And I think there's what I mean by credulousness is that you say something and I say, oh, you really believe that? Okay, write it down. <laughs> right. Um, but, you know, if you decide, for instance, to not believe anything they say, it actually, all of it makes much more sense. <laughs> um, they, for the, I wrote a piece, to, uh, I think it was yesterday, about how we're probably going to see two conflicting sets of data uh, that should not coexist, but will coexist. Um, you will see polls showing uh, increased resistance to vaccines on the one hand. And on the other hand, you're going to see reports from companies like Disney and Delta and stuff saying, saying there's increased compliance uh, uh, from those who were previously vaccinated. Well, how do you get these two sets of data to jive? Well, one way you could say is just scratch your head like you know, David Langenhardt from the Times would just scratch his head and be like, I don't know, you know it doesn't make any sense. On the other hand, you could say those people are just a bunch of liars, right? And they totally lied to those pollsters. And it's it's actually conceivable for people who work for Disney, as I say in my piece, to lie to the pollster in the morning and saying, I'm totally against vaccinations. I'll quit if my employer will force me to get them. I don't care. I'm, 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 I'm a freedom-loving American. And then that afternoon, go get a shot. And then that evening, go to an anti-vaccine rally, you know, to rail against uh, the tyranny of the government. And it will all be perfectly, uh, make perfect sense to that person because that person inhabits a universe of grotesque lies. There, you know, when you, it it shocks me how shocked some uh, Washington press corps members are 
about how much lying there is in, in some Americans' lives. But it doesn't shock me at all. I come from, I was raised in an authoritarian environment where really what was true was not what's in front of you. You could not trust your lying eyes. You were, you were literally beaten if you were trusting your lying eyes. You were to believe what the, what the leader told you to believe. And so if the leader says the sky is green and that grass is blue, then the sky is green and the grass is blue. And therefore, anything's possible. Anything. Right. And in fact, one of the hallmarks of this, I mean, it's straight Orwell, right, is this is your way of saying shibboleth. The more extreme the, 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 the misleading, the falsification from the dear leader is, the more important it is that you adhere to it because it's your way of, of kowtowing and essentially and showing that you're part of the cult. I mean, it's, yeah. that's sort of a feature of the system, not a bug. That's right. They always, so here's what they say, and this is what you should not ever believe. They always say, I am uh, I'm defending my freedom against tyranny. That is complete BS. What they truly fear is humiliation. They fear being wrong. And they have, it's, your economist listeners can remember what sunk cost means. Like the more invested they have gotten into something, the more invested they will be, right? And so if they're wrong, they will continue to be wrong. They'll be wrong three, four times wrong. And it won't matter because to, to be humiliated, which is to admit being wrong, is unthinkable. Right. It's, so it's basic sociological... Lie when prophecies fail, like back to that classic study, of the 1950s, the more outlandish it is. In that case, it was a UFO cult, right? The right. end of the world didn't come. So what happened? Did they abandon the cult? No, they doubled down. That's literally where the term cognitive dissonance comes from right. is you have to have this ability. And it's because you, you, you have to ratify your own internal construct of the world or have it totally demolished, which is untenable for most people. That internal construct is really important to keep, is really key to even understanding all this. That, in, that internal construct is very simple. God's law demands ordered power. Ordered power. Just remember that. Ordered power. And that means God over mankind, not humankind, mankind, men over women, white men over everyone else period. That's it. That is the natural order of things. That's God's law. Anything challenging that is a perversion of God's law that deserves any kind of reaction, right? And to be on top is a very good place to be if you're one of the people who's qualified to be on top, but it also means you're incredibly fragile. You're weak. You're so weak. You cannot, you can't tolerate being wrong because if you're seen as being wrong, then you, then you may not deserve to be on top. Maybe you didn't even earn it and you didn't. <laughs> well, for anyone who doubts that people can hold the kind of logical inconsistency, lie you know, in the morning and then lie in the afternoon mm -hmm. about these kinds of things, just look at the data and it's out there, it's Googleable right. on the overlap between Christian conservatism and pornography consumption in this country and around the world to see just how much people can diverge between what they say in their public face and what they do in the privacy of their own actions. I want to hit on just one more argument you've made, article you put forward. This one, I, I will say you were not alone in proffering this perspective. 
I offered it as well on the radio and in podcasts. Other analysts did as well. But there was a period about two weeks ago where the media pylon about Joe Biden and Afghanistan had reached its, its, its apogee. And you put forward a full-throated, hey, folks, this is, I can't say it on the radio, it's <laughs> bull. It is, mm-hmm. you do not accept the premise. There's a, there's a thing, it was actually a West Wing premise of, of one of their shows where the press secretary is reminded, don't accept the premise when you're dealing with the press. They have a premise to their question. And the question, what was coming from the media was, well, the premise is this is a gigantic, colossal failure. How do you feel about that? Whoa, whoa, hold on. Let's back up a second. I don't accept your premise. So you provided some pushback to that. I want to let you expound on that. And I want to also see if you feel like I feel that there is a similar gathering media narrative right now around COVID and Biden and his administration's failures around COVID and whether we're ripe for another pushback. That's certainly an idea that I've proffered to you offline mm-hmm. and that I'm kind of keeping an eye on. Yeah, you know, when it comes to the Washington Press Corps, I think your listeners would benefit from keeping in mind that it's very rarely ideological that we're talking about. If we were to think of it in terms of ideology, we would be taking the Republicans' position, right? So keep that in mind. Like, when I say bias and, th- you know, I'm really just talking about the choices that are made and why they're making them. Um, and it's really just, a, and this is not my original opinion, by the way, this is well known among people who watch uh, the Washington press corps carefully. That's just the, the way they do business tends to, um, and I don't mean business like profits, just how they conduct themselves as journalists, it tends to have a biasing effect. Um, and there's a herd mentality that goes with that. Um, that's probably the worst bias is that none of them want to be wrong, <laughs> right? And so they kind of uh, protect themselves. They circle the wagons, as you, as you might say. Um, and when it comes to when it comes to uh, war, you can only um, American can only be right. America can never be wrong. To end a war the way that Biden did is pretty unthinkable for a lot of these people to to end it and 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 to end it sloppily or not I don't think it was his fault I think the collapse of the Afghan government was the reason why it was so sloppy but for it to be sloppy was the most embarrassing thing for a lot of people invested in this idea that America can do no wrong if there was no sloppiness nobody would have a problem with ending the war I think but because it, it, it created a, a public spectacle. <laughs> that's really what, that's really the problem, I think, for a lot of the Washington press corps was the, was the spectacle. Like, it wasn't so much the thing that was done, it was how the thing was done. That, that's really, and, and that created a level of embarrassment that was pretty intolerable for a lot of them. Plus it was August and they didn't have anything else to talk about. Yeah, media I mean, really, vacuum. That has, that has a huge influence. August, they struggle to find stuff yeah. to talk about. And so they'll just pile on. Biden could have planned that a little bit better. I, I know he had the uh, 9-11 anniversary in mind, but right. hindsight 2020 being what it is. All right, look, we need to wrap up. For our listeners here, S-T-O-E-H-R, John Storr, the editorial board. If you just Google the editorial board, you're going to get like you know right. other media outlets. Put those two together and Google it and sign up. There's a free version of the newsletter that people can get. Is it a gateway drug to subscribing to the paid content? Yes, Yes. it is. It absolutely (laughs) is. I want you to get a sniff of that drug 
<laughs> I am pushing that on you because it's worth it. It is eye-opening and thoughtful and worthwhile. Thanks so much for being on Beyond Politics. Well, thank you very much, man. Thank you.